Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As New York Times bestseller, winner of two Pulitzer Prizes, the National Book Award and the Carnegie Medal for Fiction, among many other accolades, Colton Whitehead is certainly one of America's most successful contemporary writers. Described as America's storyteller, his stories resonate across the years, shedding light on the roots of America's contemporary racial injustices. He's speaking at the London Book Fair later this month. His next book, Crook Manifesto, will continue his Harlem saga in a powerful novel that summons 1970s New York in all its seedy glory. He joins me now. Colson, are you with us? I know we were having a bit of a problem with your line. Are you there? I'm here, howdy. I hope you can hear me. Oh, great. I absolutely can. I'm, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, first of all, welcome you to the show and secondly, give you a heads up that I've been asking all our listeners today um, uh, about um, their nostalgia food from childhood because I've just come back from Norway and I just spent the whole week there. I'm half Norwegian, gorging on pickled herrings. So later on, I might ask you for your nostalgia food uh, from childhood, but I'm going to let you mull that uh, while we talk. I'll get yeah, sounds good. You get to work on that. And I'm going to ask you about the London Book Fair, which uh, you're attending later this month. I think you're going to be speaking with Colin Grant, um, the British Jamaican uh, author. And I wondered what, what you're looking forward to discussing with him at the festival um, and how how you know similar and how dissimilar uh, your experiences are you know he's a, a british uh, his books are written from a sort of british jamaican perspective yours of course from an american uh, an african american perspective are there commonalities um well we're, we're, we're two different people so of course um you know i i try to do my own thing and uh you know i've written uh, across different genres sometimes i use realism sometimes fabulism Sometimes I'm writing about the South, sometimes uh, the big city. So for me, I, I try to mix it up and not try to do uh, one thing. And, and so far, it's been working. Absolutely. So what will you unpick in your conversation together? Uh, well, um, you know, for my part, uh, I'm, I'm engaged in this uh, series about New York City in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And so I've done a, a, a sort of deep archaeology of, of my hometown um, I follow one main character uh, named named uh, Ray Carney, a uh, a fence, someone who deals in stolen goods um, over the course of decades. So hopefully, uh, going to get into his story and um, how his life reflects the city. The city reflects his own personal uh, journey over a couple of decades, um, and take it from there. And is it fair to say that that you've really just written one? particularly autobiographical novel in, in, in terms of Sag Harbor? 
Uh, Sack Harbor is uh, about growing up in the 1980s in uh, in Long Island. And when it first came out, I would say it was semi-autobiographical. Um, in the 12 years since, I, no, I think nobody really cares. So I'm happy to say it's autobiographical. <laughs> and um, and in, the, in that book, talking about childhood foods, uh, there's a big sort of five-page section on frozen dinners. I was a, a latchkey kid, um, uh, which meant I would come home from school, my parents wouldn't be there, and uh, my brother and I would fend for ourselves. So there's a loving recreation of late 1970s frozen food, whether it was fried chicken with mashed potatoes um, or boil and bag uh, turkey, tetrazzini, and rice. And so my nostalgic food of childhood would be those frozen TV dinners, which uh, were not very healthy, uh, but did uh, but did the trick in terms of uh, of, of putting a meal on the plate. Yeah, it's funny how many I'm getting from the 70s. A lot of contenders for Angel Delight. I don't know if you ever had that in America. <laughs> no, that sounds pretty fabulous. It's pretty disgusting. Just <laughs> add water and there you've got instant instant dessert. But but you were quite uh, unusual, I guess, in terms of uh, of your upbringing insofar as uh, you were a well-to-do African-American family and you, you went to private schools, which must have made you feel a, a little bit sort of set apart, uh, even in youth. Well, I mean, um, you know, I, was, I always had a lot of a lot of black friends, and um, you know, to me, it was not weird. Uh, uh, I had a lot of you know black friends who went to public school, to private school, and um, uh, I do write about the sort of culture clash in, uh, in in my autobiographical book. But it's really more to get at, at a metaphor for America and, and how separate we are, how together we are. Um, the book is about a black teenager coming into his identity, but it's really about being a teenager in general. So you can relate to it, whether uh, no matter what kind of upbringing you have, it's about identity formation, where, uh, where you end and your community begins, your family begins. Um, it's about coming into a self. And so in terms of the main character in that book, um, uh, part of that identity formation comes between sorting white culture from black culture. But in the end, uh, you know, he sort of realizes that everyone's faking it, no matter what, uh, where you're coming from, what, what skin color you are. So um, it does start in a very specific kind of way and quickly becomes universal because uh, we can all relate to his struggles to, to define himself. Um, as you've said, you've written in, in many different genres. Um, I've only recently completed The Nickel Boys, uh, which is perhaps... Um, can I can I describe it as as brutalist uh, to an extent? I mean, I I read the, the the opening two pages and thought I really don't want to read this, but I absolutely have to, and it felt like that all the way through it. It completely overwhelmed me, sucked me in, but at the same time, you know, is 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 quite confronting because of the fact, not least, that it, it's based on a true story. Uh, tell me a little bit yeah. about why about that book and 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 what prompted it. Well, similarly, I didn't want to write it, but I, I had to. Um, so the the source material um, stayed with me, and you know, as time goes by, if an idea stays with you, it's arguing for its um, viability as a project. So uh, the, the, it takes off from a real life case. There was a, a juvenile detention center called the Dozier School in Florida. It was open for a hundred years, and uh, the idea was very lofty. You know, instead of locking up teenage offenders with grown-ups, where well, we have a separate facility where they can learn a trade, go to school, and when they get out, they can rejoin society. Um, 
But as usual, when you get humans involved, a good idea uh, degrades pretty quickly. So there was a lot of abuse, uh, sexual, physical, and some kids went missing. And when the school finally closed, they found a secret graveyard where uh, the kids who had supposedly run away were actually buried. Um, so I came across the story in the news and I was shocked I never heard about it. It was a national story for one day. And I started thinking about what kind of story I could get out of the black part of campus. It was, there were black and white kids there, um, uh, but all the survivors who came forward were white. And so there was a story of the black part of campus uh, that kept talking to me. Um, it is, it's a grim story. It's a true story. Uh, Jim Crow, uh, the Jim Crow period in American history um, picked up from the legacy of slavery in terms of uh, black control, inequality. Um, so whereas some of my books have a lot of jokes, this book didn't really have a lot of room for, for jokes at all. You know, I, I try to mix it up and sometimes deal with more lofty topics. Sometimes I'm in, I'm in for the book to tell some, some low jokes. Um, but either way, <laughs> yes, uh, those are both, not both parts of our here. lives. But, but, yeah. but the thing I think that that was, I mean, the, the story itself is horrific, but we've heard many similar horrific stories. I suppose uh, to an extent, the thing that was most upsetting, uh, to me was that your young, upright, bookish um, character, Elwood, you know, suffers this extreme miscarriage of justice. And his most prized possession up until the point he's incarcerated in this reform school is is this recording of Martin Luther King. And he believes King's words and he believes, you know, forgiveness and being upright and holding your head high and we'll love you till you change, you know, and, and all of those dictums. But actually... The book you've written is, 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 in many ways, quite a hopeless one. I think it depends on your perspective. You know, there, there are two kids who are at the school, and you can't really come out of that kind of school intact unless you have hope. And so there is, for me, this animating uh, belief and hope uh, in, 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 in salvation that animates the story and also gives the, the kids purpose. And so um, uh, how do you deal with a world that is merciless, that is cruel? Um, what kind of personal reserves do you draw upon? What kind of lies do you invent to keep you going? Um, it takes place in the early 60s, and Dr. King's message is transforming American society. Do we believe uh, those ideas uh, wholeheartedly, or do we have to question them given the reality of the times? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And what do you feel? I mean, you've the thing, you, you've written these novels, all of them in, in their way, you know, absolutely brilliantly immersive fiction, but also morality tales to an extent or, or, or campaigning books to an extent. And yet I think by your own assertion, you know, politicians don't read uh, fiction or don't read books. So do you hope to achieve something? You said you write in the African-American uh, literary tradition. Do you hope to achieve something with them? Or are you reluctant to be a spokesperson and, and happy to be a writer? Well, there's a few, a few things there in terms of the messages in the book. Uh, they're open to interpretation in terms of my ideas of where we're going as a society. Uh, I'm very negative. And I don't really see a lot of progress happening in, in my lifetime. And that that idea is sometimes present in the books, sometimes not. Uh, I step outside of myself to talk about the world and whether the book has a more hopeful or optimistic message or more pessimistic message. Um, those are both parts of the human experience. Mm. Um may have nothing to do with me personally. And in terms of being uh, a, a spokesperson, I'm just a weird guy in my apartment thinking up weird stories. And um, if people come to them and uh, and enjoy them, if I do it in the right way and people come along, I'm very happy. Um, if uh, they're not as accessible, you know, perhaps the next one will be. Um, so I feel like I'm writing for myself, trying to do the, the best project that's... Um, uh, illuminating and enlightening for me at that time. And sometimes they're political and sometimes they're not. Mm. I was reading this article the other day about reparations and uh, in particular uh, reparations for, for the slavery, of course. And and reading the Nickel Boys, you know, one of the things that, that struck me is how do you make up for the experience that, that, that these people have had, that these boys in this particular story have had? What are your feelings on that? Uh, you don't uh, make up for it, uh, and no one's really interested, so it'll never happen. Um, it's it's funny because I mean there is there movement. Is a, uh, There's more conversation around it as a, as a, as a, a possible. I mean, governments um, and institutions have started to pay at least lip service to to the idea that there is something to be atoned for. Sure, lip service, but I think there's more um, energy uh, preventing any kind of real progress on that. It's funny because I. I I never had a, a, a conversation about reparations in America. It's only when I talk to European journalists that it comes up. Really? So maybe there's a more conversation in Europe about reparations, but I don't think anybody here has any kind of realistic notion that um, uh, the government will uh, be held accountable for anything it, it does, whether it's in the present or in the past. So how do you change the dynamic? You say that you're pessimistic about the future. And uh, as I said, atonement is is necessary. Clearly, I mean, to, to, to pluck this Nickel Boy story out of so many, many millions of, of stories, you know, it's a, it's a, it is a, a shocking tale. What, what do we have to do to change society? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, it's, I don't want to be a negative Nelly. <laughs> Bring everybody down. Uh, well, it's lunchtime here. <laughs> I think it's, you know, 
the one thing that does give me hope is that sort of younger generation, I think uh, uh, my Gen X generation, the baby boomers, the greatest generation have done a really good job of, of screwing things up. But when I see how engaged a lot of our young people are, it does uh, give me at least some sort of dim notion uh, that they can maybe uh, attack and uh, some of our some of the problems we've left them with, and perhaps things might get a little brighter. But definitely, I've given up on, on my generation. That's very sad. Uh, and as a, a double Pulitzer Prize winner, as I've been saying all morning in in uh, anticipation of, of talking to you, and having been described as a, America's storyteller, they sound like, you know, of course, amazing accolades, but also heavy burdens for a man who maybe just wants to tell stories. Well, I mean, you know, I, I've been writing for 25 years and publishing fiction and nonfiction, and sometimes you're up and, and sometimes you're down. Sometimes uh, a book or project will uh, reach readers and sometimes they'll ignore it. So um, in terms of the, the burden of some of the uh, the nice things I've had happen to me the last couple of years, um, I'm always humbled by the, by the blank page the next day. And so whether things are going right or poorly in your career, uh, the work never gets easier. So... Um, that keeps me grounded. It's a challenge. Um, and then also, luckily, there's that day-to-day pleasure of the work, discovering a new kind of sentence, something about a character. So um, uh, whether things are going well or bad, just keep going on. If I could do something else, I would, but I haven't found that yet. Do you think you're writing in the African-American tradition or creating an African-American you tradition? You know, I... I um, uh, I, I did say that in an interview uh, uh, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It stayed with me. It was sort of these uh, things do, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was being a bit pretentious because uh, I was thinking about my literary ancestors, whether it's Gene Toomer or Ralph Ellison or, or Toni Morrison. Um, I think I discovered pretty quickly I was making my own weird path. I think because of the people who went before me. There's no one black novel to write. Um, a lot of my peers were all doing different things. And I think that, that's really great. There's not just one black artist, uh, one James Baldwin, one Toni Morrison. Uh, we have a great diversity in our community now where we can tell all, all, all kinds of stories. Tell me then about Crook Manifesto, which sadly I haven't had a chance to read yet because it's not out till July here, I think. And I didn't get, to, I didn't manage to get my hands on a coffee, but it, uh, on a copy. But it is a, a return, I think, the second instalment of your of your Harlem saga. Um, you grew up in the Upper East Side. Did that mean that you that Harlem seemed like this kind of far away, unreachable, glorious place? Uh, yeah, I lived all over the city when I was a, a, a tiny child. I lived lived in Harlem uh, until I was six years old. So obviously I don't remember much about it. It does take place, uh, the book, in the, the 1960s and 1970s. So that meant a lot of historical research and immersing myself in, in the time. And it was great. Uh, it was great uh, research. Um, and I felt very connected to New York City. I felt connected to Harlem, which I was recreating. Um in the end, you know, I've sort of talked to some people and they want to know why everybody is a is a, a criminal, where the good people of Harlem. And, you know, it's not a documentary. It's about a bunch of criminal types 
in, in New York City and not really representative of, of most people in, uh, in Harlem or New York City. So it's a portrait of a, of a character and a time. And I've never uh, done a sequel before. I've never explored a character um, over, say, a thousand pages. So it's been a really great thing to find a new way of, of writing, you know, 25 years in and a, a new way of telling stories. Just finally, I, I think you said your father had um, uh, or was apocalyptic in his racial view of America. It does sound uh, from talking to you today that you may have inherited that. Well, it's not really much to be cheerful about. So um, I don't feel it's my job to make people feel good about the world. Um, I tell like I see it and uh, the news is often pretty terrible. Explain to me what that means for you, because obviously we're coming as 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 you know, as we talked in the beginning about the fact you're coming here to have this conversation with a, a British Jamaican. You're talking as an African American. Explain to me what that means in terms of being a Black American at this point in our history. Uh, well, it seems you know. I mean, I can only speak for myself. It means trying to carve out a little space of, of joy through your friends and your family. Uh, hopefully you have a job that uh, is meaningful to you because you're going to spend a, a lot of hours during the day doing that job. Um, so the world is not necessarily um, an incredibly wholesome place. Uh, if you can carve out a little bit of, of space for joy in your life, that seems to be uh, a major accomplishment. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. History.